You're listening to the January 21st edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society. On this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring an in-depth conversation with French-Canadian filmmaker and actor Xavier Dolan. Xavier Dolan's latest film, Mommy, will begin its theatrical release here at Lincoln Center this week. Mommy won the jury prize in the main competition at the Cannes Film Festival last May, an award he shared with Jean-Luc Godard's film, Goodbye to Language. The drama stars Quebecois actress Anne Dorval as widowed mother Diane Dupre, who is overwhelmed raising her troubled and sometimes violent teenage son Stephen, played by Antoine Olivier Pilon. In Cannes, the film received a 13-minute standing ovation at its world premiere, and it was selected by Canada as its best foreign language contender at this year's Oscars. At just 25 years of age, Xavier Dolan nevertheless has four Cannes Film Festival premieres under his belt. His debut film, I Killed My Mother, which he wrote, directed, and starred in, won three prizes at the festival, where it premiered in the Director's Fortnight section in 2009. His two subsequent films, Heartbeats and Lawrence Anyways, screening the festival's Un Search and Regard section, and his previous film, Tom at the Farm, had its world premiere in the main competition at the 70th Venice Film Festival in September 2013. Xavier Dolan recently joined us here at the Film Society as part of our year-round free talk series sponsored by HBO. To attend these free events, please check filmlink.com for updates. But for now, let's go to my conversation with Xavier Dolan. Welcome, Xavier. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to have you, and uh, you've been traveling a lot for a long time talking about mommy, so we appreciate that you've agreed to sit down with us for, oh, maybe as much as an hour, maybe a little bit less, uh, to talk about this film before many people have a chance to see it next week. But as I mentioned, a number of people have already seen Mommy, so uh, we'll look forward to their questions. Um, how many people here have seen at least one or two of Xavier's other films? Okay. Um, I'm glad to see that, and I'm not surprised. Uh, we have a terrific... I am. <laughs> you are? <laughs> then I'm glad and surprised. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because um, your films, uh, while some of them have been released in New York. Uh, some of them have been a little harder to come by uh, in this country, <laughs> safe to say. Um, but I think that um, your work, certainly through the writings of film critics and through the interviews you've done over the years, your work precedes you in that it's cultivated uh, a demand and an interest in your work. Um, I think the writing about Even I Killed My Mother, a movie that, that people have been hearing about for years, didn't really get a proper release in this country until very recently. So um, I think it's exciting for us to be able to play a part in Mommy getting out into the world, but also um, just that people have this opportunity to discover and kind of engage with your, your first five films now in a moment when... Um, I think it hasn't really been uh, hasn't really been as open to them or available to them. So I don't know. I think that having I killed my mother now, having a recent release, is really exciting. 
Yeah, and it's it's been awkward for me because obviously I you know I feel very close to 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 the United States and the American culture, and it's I live in Quebec, which is which is right across you know uh, the corner, and um, the USA is one of the only markets in the world where I didn't have the chance to really well I did come a couple times talk about the films Lawrence anyways and 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 but. It's always been very idiosyncratic releases or very small or very um and um and I feel like mommy is is like my first film actually <laughs> here well it it is interesting to me, and i I agree with you about that, and I also find that there's a dialogue happening between the two films between um between mommy and between I killed my mother, um not just because mom or mommy is in the title. Um, but I was thinking about this as I was re-watching I Killed My Mother last night, and I've seen it a few times, but I hadn't watched it in a couple of years, to be honest. And I was thinking a lot about, um, as we dig into what Mommy is about, um, there's this character, this kid, this boy named Steve, who um, he's troubled. He has ADHD. He is... Um, it's a little more than ADHD. He's really mentally ill. Like, it's... it's yeah. And it takes more than just one mom to mm-hmm. harness and handle and manage this this kid, right? Um, and it's interesting to me to think about how it's really these two different types of maternal figures that are coming together to kind of create this triangle with him. And in I Killed My Mother, also I see this... Um, these kind of two very strong maternal figures. One is a mom and one is uh, another woman in the film. For those who have seen it, maybe some people haven't yet. But um, again, these two maternal figures that that play this really important role for this character played by you in the film. Um, and so it's a natural, and it's something you've talked about and, and you reference, you've referenced in conversations about mommy in particular, and that is the role of the mom, the role of the every mom um, maybe that's something you can elaborate on and will give us a little bit of some clues into sort of some of the themes that you've been exploring in this film, but that connect to some of your other work. You mean you want me to explain how I Kill My Mother and Mommy are well, related, or what is the role of, of the mom for me in general? Thinking about the bigger mom, and you referred to this yeah. idea of the, the, the uber mom or something. I forgot how you called it. but <laughs> Super mom. Super mom. Um, well, it's, it's, it's going to be a long answer, uh, but... Um, I feel that I'm very drawn to to the mother figure because, um, well, you know, first it's not only one role or it's not a one once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, when you talk about a mom and then you're done. You know, moms are just it's just the stat. You know, it's it's status. It's 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 not something. It's not who you are. It's it's. Um, I feel like you know I could spend the rest of my life talking about mothers and never really being done. It's a bottomless well of inspiration for me. And and from I killed my mother to mommy, those are two very, very different mothers. And I've never really I've never really abandoned the idea or the theme because I've been talking about about mothers in Lawrence anyways and about mothers in, in well, one mother in Tom at the Farm. So it's always been not necessarily central in my work, but it's always been at the center of every film. Um, it's always been there. And I think that, I think that 
it is a figure through which I'm able to fight my fights and well, weirdly, I, I understand that, but it <laughs> it is a figure through which for me it's natural and organic to express my ideas and my frustrations and 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 fight and 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 claim things. Uh, I could do it through the figure of a twenty something young man, but it's proven to be less efficient and liberating in the past. I I find that. Um, mothers are are accessible to me. I can relate to them, uh, even if I'm not one, obviously. But um, but are so, you are you saying that you place your yourself in the character of these mothers? Because you said you sort of fight through them. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, at least it's really hot in here. I know it is a little warm. This right now. It's a little warm in here. So. Yeah. No, I, what I'm trying to say is that, and be, especially because I know that in the next two movies, it still <laughs> is about mothers. Uh, but in a different way, uh, because it's different human beings, it's different individuals, right? But they're just very interesting and rich and complex figures. Because they're not dull and they're not, you know, they, they have made sacrifices. They are flawed and they are uh, true and, and, and sometimes, most of the time, on the edge. And, and I just find them to be a very solid foundation to build a character. And as a quick follow-up to that, and then we'll switch topics. Uh, do you see the maternal in opposition to the paternal or do you see them in connection or do you really not make a distinction because it strikes me that that these two figures these two characters that connect with um steve or that connect with your character in in i killed my mother could be seen by some as having maternal and both paternal characteristics or how do you draw those lines between maternal and paternal if at all i don't draw one i fathers are not invited in my films. <laughs> um, I, um, it's, you know, I, I don't think we have to look very deep to understand. Uh, I was brought up mostly by women and I have a m great relationship with my father mm -hmm. uh, now. This is gonna be really complicated doing this and hold holding it at the same time. Uh, very challenging. Um, but, um, yeah, it's not that I have daddy issues or that I have mom issues. It's more intricate than that. It would be, I think that would be too easy. Uh, but um, it's just that I've been brought up by, by women and by mothers, I guess. So they are the people that I've been watching as a kid that I, with, you know, uh, whose fights and problematics and, 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 and failures have marked me. Uh, you know, as striking and, and, and worthy of, of, you know, writing down and, and, and reenacting. And so there is no line drawn between paternal and maternal. Um, I don't know. Fathers just don't naturally find their ways in my scripts or in my stories. They're always dead. They're always gone. Uh, they've divorced. They've been divorced. Um, um, I don't know. I've never asked myself that. And 
I was just thinking about it right now. In the next two ones, no dads. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna need to talk uh, to this uh, to someone. <laughs> well, um, let's do this. Let's pause for a moment, and I'm I'm saying this to give a clue to our projectionists who are up in the booth that we're gonna take a look at a clip and. Um, the title of the first clip is actually "Who's Your Daddy," um, and there you go. we can talk about why that is in a moment. But um, just to set it up, uh, we mentioned this guy Steve, uh, this this fifteen year old boy, um, and um, this first scene. I don't know. Is there anything you want to say about it? This is the "Who's Your Daddy" scene with the, the trolley, the shopping cart. You want me to give some context? Do you want to give this, a little, this clip? Yeah, sure. I don't mind. Um, so the, sto- the, the film tells the story of Di, who's a widowed single uh, mom, who uh, inherits, quote-unquote, inherits the custody of her, of her very troubled and rambunctious son, who is expelled from a correctional center. And she takes him back home, decides that she will hold, uh, homeschool him, that she will do everything you know, to bring him back on the right track. And that together they're gonna try and make it work and make ends meet. And they're obviously having a, you know, a hard time in the beginning of the film. She uh, loses her job. That is literally twenty minutes in. Um, and and he hearing overhearing conversation uh, that his mother has on the phone, asking for a job, mentioning very subtly or not so subtly that she is she's running short of money and that she's a bit scared, her son decides to go and do some shopping for her. Um. Let's take a look at the first clip. There are three aspects that come up in this clip that I want to talk about and that we can get to. Let's, I want to start by talking about the, characterization, the characterization of Steve, but then you know, it's, it's also two other things that are quite apparent on the surface of what we just saw, are the, the look of the film and the sound and music, and we'll get to these topics um, as well. But to help us understand how you built this character, tell us about the creation of this character of Steve, who not only has ADHD, but as you said, is, has mental challenges. Um, tell, me about, tell us about building this character and coming up with... How you how you decided to define him? Um, I don't know. I, I uh, well, I read an article many years ago uh, in the Reader's Digest. I don't know in what context, but uh, and it was awful. It was about a mother who had dropped her son uh, in a hospital because he was just too much trouble for her, and he he, he was way younger than Steve. He was like seven or eight. And he had attempted, you know, he tried to commit suicide. He, um, uh, he, was, he really was um, um, problematic and, and very violent and impulsive and explosive and, and unpredictable. And, and she had another son who was endangered, I guess. Um, anyway, in the article was about the drive from her home to the hospital and how she had lied to him and told him that they would be, you know, have whatever snack or picnic in the park. Or she loved her son very much, but she just felt so helpless, and she had no money. And anyway, it was a nightmare. Um, and then I had thought, um, yeah, I want to tell a story about about that sort of relationship, about about wanting to love your 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 son more than anything, but at one point not being able to protect him and and making the 
biggest sacrifice of your life, which is surrendering. And anyway, um, and so I knew that Steve from the very beginning would be one of those kids who are profoundly um, behaviorally disordered. Um, so I knew that it just, you know, it could just be, you know, hyperactivity or it, it, it was more intricate than that. So I did some research, not a lot. <laughs> I'm a bit lazy, I guess. Um, well, when, I mean, when it comes to that, I'm, I'm just like, ugh, I just want to write and I don't want to be, you know, restrained by, um, but, you know, I made sure that it made sense, but somehow it wasn't extremely complicated to me to understand how Steve felt and who he was. I just had to, you know, look, um, I just had to look inside me. Um, you know, his, how he reacts is, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm behaviorally disordered or mentally ill, but I do have a great deal. I do carry a great deal of, 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 of violence and angst and anger in, in, in me. And I found um, some ways to channel that, but he hasn't found any way to channel his uh, anger. And so, yeah, I just imagined him you know, snapping, reacting to the faintest of details and, and, and just seeing red and, 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 um, yeah, I, 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 but I thought that of course he'd be extremely funny that he would have to be very charismatic, very, have a very good heart because that is the, you know, you, you're not, it's not about the, the problem with the, with these kids is that they, they don't mean to harm anyone. Uh, they, 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 you know, they're not, uh, you don't, you're not born, uh, evil or there's no such thing as, you know, it's, it's not either all white or, or black or it's in shades of gray, 50 shades of gray, actually, uh, I don't know where I'm going. Um, and, um, anyway, um, and I'm thinking about that. Okay. Uh, that <laughs> he will see you now. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Steve, yeah, I knew that, you know, there would have to be contrast uh, because it couldn't just be, you know, this kid who's breaking things and who's like screaming and who's dangerous and who's looking at his mother like that. You know, it's not, things are not like that yeah. in life. Yeah. And I wanted him to be extremely uh, endearing. Not because I think, I thought that, well, what if people hate my character and don't identify to him? No, because I thought that in real life, it would be, that would be the way of it. That these children are incredibly are beautiful, but that they're ill, so they just snap. And the problem of Steve, and I found that later in the process of pre-production because I met with a specialist, a doctor, who uh, read a scene and who said, because I was seeking his advice on certain things, and uh, I guess I wanted to make it work. I wanted to insert the story within a certain social context, which I could never do in the end, because it is completely unrealistic. A kid never gets fired from a correctional facility. Yeah. Hey, he, he, sorry, he tried to, you know, set this place on fire, so he's too much trouble. You're going to have to take him back. 
No. <laughs> I don't think so. They would just lock him yeah. up even We'll just more. lock him up forever <laughs> with, a, with lots of pills. This is how it works, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But this is not the story I wanted to tell with yeah. social workers and police officers yeah. and day tours and, and, and court. And I didn't want to get, you know, I don't want to stumble upon all these, these scenes and add more. I wanted to focus on the intimacy and the rapport between three people, that triangle, mm-hmm. that triangular love, mm-hmm. that gratuitous benevolent friendship this is what i wanted to talk about in this mm-hmm. film kindness and trying to help each other all of that so and that doctor was was reading one of those um scenes and he was like i don't know that i can help you to make that make sense but by the way i just want to tell you that you know that what steve has here all this speaks to you know an attachment trouble this is what he's got and i was like what is an attachment trouble and he was like, well, and I'm not sure, by the way, this translates very well in English, this attachment thing. Um, it means that he is attached to projects. No, but I mean, <laughs> he, he, uh, it's, it's in the way, you know, it's in your relation with your mother. It means it's, fu- it's fucked. Uh, but how, it, how we can, you know, put it, what we could put it down to is basically this, that a kid is, lives in the constant, with the constant doubt that his mother's love is reciprocal to his love, the, the love he feels for her, mm-hmm. and that he will never know that his, mother, that his mother either loves him or loves him enough or as much as he loves her, and he will seek through every gesture, through every word he speaks, the confirmation of that love, and will never get it because he is blindfolded. He, he, he cannot see that love because he is his whole body and his whole system will contradict and reject any proof of love because if he received that proof of love everything would be over there would be no conflict anymore and he rejoices in conflicts without knowing it unbeknownst to himself he this is what he is seeking so most of the time those this is what he told me those situations end up with the kid killing his mother for real um, not, you know, as, you know, we say that psychologically speaking or ki- killing her for real because the guilt of killing his mother is, is far more, is, is alleviating uh, compared to the doubt of not knowing that she loves him. And so anyway, that is uh, the trouble that Steve has and in, in, in writing this character. I just, just thought that we, we should understand the depths of, you know, the, the chasm, I guess, in which he, he lives and how lost he is. We should identify to that, even though we can't really understand or relate because it is rare to, to you know, be that warped about love. And to transition what everything, everything you've just said, which is extremely insightful, um, the heaviness that you're carrying into and throughout this film, the to transition into the visuals of the movie, you don't let that heaviness bleed into, for lack of a better word, the way you decide to compose and shoot and design the film. Yeah. It's bright and it's moving and it's physically moving and also emotionally moving. Um, but I think that because um, you could have gone 
in a much more miserable, you could have taken a miserable art film approach, which would be to depict a world. That's what we tried so hard to avoid. So tell us about how you designed this film. You, you spend, you, you yourself spend a lot of time um, in designing the costumes, the look, obviously you edit your work. Um, so maybe you can elaborate on that because you could have, de- you could have designed something very different. Sure. Um, well, um, I did this with André uh, Turpin, who did Tom at the Farm, who's the cinematographer, sorry, who did Tom at the Farm and who did this video clip, this music video that I've shot called um, College Boy. And so we had done College Boy, which was extremely, I guess, arty, and we had done Tom at the Farm, which is extremely, I guess, ugly. Uh <laughs> Because it meant to be. We were like, I remember, I'd want, because I thought that any flourishes would be very distracting in this. I wanted it to be a thriller, you know? As much as I asked people when, they've seen, when they saw Lawrence anyways, did you cry? I was like, were you scared? Um, people were like, yes, I was scared. Yes. I was, yeah. And I'm like, but really scared? And they were like, I don't know, but maybe a little bit? And I was like, and this is really what I was seeking. And I thought that anything pretty, really, any slow motion, and there's like one slow motion shot, I think, in the whole film. Uh, I thought that any of this would be very annoying and, and tiresome and would, would, it would be keeping anyone from engaging emotionally, I mean, with fear or tension. Um, so, and I remember we, we had shot one one scene one one there was one this one shot where tom was picking up his glasses broken glasses that he had not worn all through throughout the film that were broken by francis who is the antagonist in the film and his rival i guess um and and he was picking up the glasses and putting them on to read a a diary a journal a diary or whatever and and the, the you know the frame and the the lenses were were broken, and it was so arty. <laughs> when we watched it, I mean, when we had the dailies, we watched the shot, and we were like, "Oh my God, this is beautiful," and this is why it won't be in the film. <laughs> you were like, "We have to get rid of that." So we had just done this exercise of really keeping it, you know, and 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 holding back and resisting any of our desires or temptations for aesthetics or whatsoever in Tom. So that's why people write, it's such a stylish movie. I'm like, I don't, I don't think you know what you're talking about, but whatever. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a wall and a toilet bowl and a stall, you know? So I don't know what's stylish. And then it's a cow, you know, shitting on grass. So anyway, um, and my hair, it's just, Terrible. <laughs> uh, so, when we did Mommy, all, bottom line is that when we did Mommy, we were ready to shoot, I guess, what we wanted to be beautiful imagery. We thought that there was no reason that this film should be look, looking like one of the characters' bank account and look miserable, look gray, be dull, be ugly, be poor, be, that is 
poverty porn. And it's so popular right now, right? But I hate it. There is nothing more. There is nothing that I hate more. Sorry, I don't know how to speak English. Um, <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. Uh, there is nothing I hate more than that. Than seeing a director venturing into the suburbanite safari, you know, and, 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 the, and the burbs, right? Trying to understand what it feels like to be poor. I, it is, it's like physical, it's visceral. I want to hit, I want to throw up, I want to hurl. I want to kick the seat in front of me. I just, I scream in a theater. I'm like, ah, oh, of course she wears no bra. She doesn't deserve one, right? <laughs> you know, it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's such a lack of respect to characters. They deserve pretty clothes. They deserve tapestry. And, and not tapestry to mock them and, 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 and ridiculize them. And, and no, pretty, pretty shoes and, and pretty hair and a nice tattoo and those heels and those jeans. It might not be your tastes, <laughs> but it is her tastes. And she thinks she is a princess. So she dresses up in this film like she was a princess and like she was 16. And she is beautiful and glowing. And, and I, I told André, um, I wanted the backlight to be pink. He was like, is it the sunset? And I was like, no, I don't care. I want it to be pink. And put a spotlight in the, you know, in the back, yellow, for no reason at all. <laughs> I want this film to look like it was shot on Venice Beach. That's how, you know, happy and jovial I want it to be. Not because we're like, this will be the contrast between what they're living, it is a tragedy, and what it looks like. And, you know, it's not about that. I just wanted the movie to be beautiful and filled with hope and light, just like the characters. Because these characters, I mean, Di and Steve mostly, are winners. They have their hearts on their sleeves, and they are not wallowing in their you know, the stress and their, their, their situation and their financial problems. No, they're like, yay. They fight and they, they scream at each other and he's pounding on the wall and she cracks this vase on his head because she thinks that he's gonna strangle her. And then a minute later, they're having dinner and he's spitting his milk because she's making him laugh. And that's, for me, that, that, that was... This is how we designed the entire film. This is how we produced the entire film. As much as we were jumping everywhere on set and being extremely happy and enthusiastic, never we wanted to, and Anne and Sis, everybody shared that opinion. No one wanted to stress anything. And, and why would we stress their financial and social situation? Why, would, why should they look like... Uh, they stem from whatever social, whichever social strata it is they stem from. Should we call it white trash? Or, I mean, probably. So, and Dai is very intelligent and very witty. And I thought, yes, I want them to have a certain slang and, and, and not really know how to talk. Yet, I thought it would be interesting that their slang is so, their English is so, sorry, French is so broken that is almost musical. It's, only a, it's almost a piece of music where every note falls in the right place. Same thing with music. Um, well, not only, you know, cheap, awfully cheap, idiotic songs. Some of them were cheap, though. But, <laughs> but 
The I music love them. is and the music is a soundtrack that his late father has given him, right? It's, yes. it's, a, it's a mixtape. Because mix, I thought CD. that just as a parenthesis, I thought that it would be more interesting that the songs would come from the characters than from me. They do come from me, though. But, I mean, not that I don't endorse them. I don't know how these songs ended up in my movie. Uh, someone put them there, and then it was picture-locked, and I couldn't do anything about it. Um, but, I mean, I thought that it, it should mirror, you know, their tastes and, and, and what makes them happy, and that it would make us happy, too. And someone tweeted, <laughs> someone tweeted um, uh, yesterday or two days ago, <laughs> why that the songs in Xavier Dolan's new movie had to be so awful? <laughs> and I was like, and I obviously, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm betraying myself here. Yes, I did uh, Google myself. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, and I, I was trying to think of a very witty response and, and, and I couldn't, so I don't know why I'm telling you that story. <laughs> I couldn't devise anything, you know, sassy or... I want to talk about music a bit more in a moment. Let's get the next clip ready. And um, it's, called, it's called Take Care. Um, I'm not sure why it's called Take Care. I'm trying to remember. Uh, let's take a look at the clip and then we'll talk some more. <laughs> Just because I think it's worth um, hearing you talk about it. Now we've seen these two clips um, talking about the framing, um, this one-to-one -one aspect ratio, this Instagram, this like iPhone aspect ratio. These are the things that I think of when I see when I saw the movie for the very first time in Cannes, I, I was thinking about those aspects of it. But but tell us about the conversations now that you had with your DP and, and the thoughts that you had about framing it. Because without giving too much away, you play with that in the film. Tom at the farm, you play with a wider aspect ratio, like this, like this. So tell us about that for this film. Um, well, when. Andre and I shot the music video for College Boy. He said, we should do that in one-to-one. -one. And I was like, mm-hmm, I know. What is one-to-one? -one? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, well, it's, you know, you know see albums and CDs, you know, the square. And I was like, okay. And he was like, Instagram. I was like, oh, oh yeah, Instagram. <laughs> but of course, I mean, I know that aspect ratio for photography right because it's six by six when yeah, you yeah. when you if you shoot with you know 120 millimeter square photos portraits have always been my favorite i just never thought that but why not that we could you know use that as an aspect ratio and then i said have you ever seen this and he was like well probably some of the early expressionist uh german movies before the academy ratio mm -hmm. but um I don't know, I'd have to check, and I'll be like, okay, well, you know, it's a music video, let's try it, let's explore. No one will ever tell you, I think this show is very pretentious, you know, it's a music video, <laughs> it's meant to have fun, yeah. and see, you know, and so we did, and I was extremely surprised, and in a positive way, when I was watching the dailies, I was looking at the close-ups of the characters, and they felt extremely human and very close to the characters and very much, very private, very intimate, more than any close-ups I had ever seen. And so I was surprised that it, it didn't really come off as too artistic or ostentatious or it was just, for me, at least to me, like watching photos, portraits, where you're, you know, 
thinking about the person's story and the subjects, you know, uh, the circumstances, and that you don't see a lot. Everything is blurred, and every, and you, all you see is it's really shoulders, and and there's a structure, and it's not telling you anything about what's around. It's just telling you about what's here. Mm-hmm. So, and I knew when I started to write Mommy that this would be the film where I would try and resist myself the most in terms of instincts and ideas and flourishes. In time of the farm, I had resisted entirely, so it wasn't complicated. Now I was about finding the right moment for these moments. But I knew that it would be character-driven that the story would be character-driven. And that aspect ratio for me was not a flourish. It was not a device. It was not a gimmick. It was just a way to eliminate distractions right and left of frame and, and focus on the characters mm-hmm. and provide the film with two moments of, you know, when you can breathe, finally when the characters break free, well, something happens and, and the aspect ratio changes in some way that I think we should not describe. But, you know, it's not that original. It's, it's a bit of a stupid idea, actually. But we just weren't scared of it, I guess. Without describing it, it does create for this viewer, for me, um, the two most emotional, moving moments in the film. Oh, thank you. Um, and for those of you who've seen it, you know what we're referring to. And for those of you who haven't, you'll watch it on a big screen and uh, experience it for yourself. I want to let the audience ask some questions. And if you have a question, let's make sure we get a microphone so that we can uh, record your, your question. So we're going to start. Uh, who has, where's uh, my colleagues who have microphones? There's one up here. So do you mind if we start down here in the front row and then we'll work our way back? Hi. Hi. Um... I just wanted to ask about just, this is your first film that has an absence of the queer subject matter, I guess. Mm-hmm. I just want to hear more about that decision, I guess. I don't know. Well, there's never been a decision to incorporate queer themes or matters in other films. It just was automatic or natural or organic with the story. It's never been at the center of anything I've done, not even Lawrence anyways for me. What is at the center of Lawrence anyways is an impossible love story more than the story of a transgendered woman. I guess that what I've been trying to do with, with, with queer problematics and themes since the very beginning is to incorporate them in plots where they were not central, uh, where they were not problematics um, so that I wouldn't be stressing that and I would try to my 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 point of view is 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 pretty elementary is that we live in a time where it is time to blur the line that we have so clearly drawn around a certain community or around other communities and what I've been trying to do in my films is and I was talking about this today I once read a, in a a TV schedule, whatever, TV grid, that um, uh, I Killed My Mother was playing, and the synopsis was this. Uh, teenager at odds is at odds with his mother when he comes out to her. 
which is not at all the story of I killed my mother. It is the story of a teenage boy who is in who is rejecting everything around himself who's you know it's a coming of age crisis and he it feels the most sincere um incompatibility with his mother and that's why that's why they're they're at odds because they have nothing to share they have nothing to say to each other he hates what she's wearing what she's saying what she's cooking what she's not doing what she is doing and probably likewise so oh and by the way he is gay which you know which didn't um change anything really you know it was another synopsis saying she is sending him to boarding school because she found out he he finds she finds out he is gay no false again so it's it's just all these first films have been just you know, writing queer characters not as a part of a social endeavor, not as a part of a movement, not as a part of a community, just because that's how I, that's who I am. And for me, it is not even a trait. It is not even a trait. A trait, T-R-A-I-T, that word. It is not something that can define a character or a quest. Unless you are making a film about a young man coming out of the closet, which would be very, very modern. <laughs> um, and, or I mean, it, it could be also a thriller taking place in Ohio, um, where hell is real. Um, but, um, but what I'm saying is that it's, it's, it's n anyway, they've never been driven by, by a queer plot. Um, and so mommy is not not queer. It's just a movie and there are no queer characters in it and there was no decisions uh, whatsoever at whatever time uh, explaining or justifying that it's not even a choice. The story just felt like, like Steve was straight. So I hope that answers your question. Let's go to the front row on this side. Hi. Hi. Um, two of your best music choices are Betty Davis Eyes and Lawrence Anyways and uh, I'm Blue in Mommy. So I was wondering if you could specifically... That tells us a lot about who you are. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think they're very... And who I am, I guess. <laughs> what? Uh, and who I am, I guess. And so I was just wondering if you could specifically elaborate on why those... like on your thought process behind each of those two songs and the two scenes that they're in. And maybe if I could add a, a, a half, of, half a question to that, and it might be worth having the audience understand how music, you touched about music, talked about music earlier, but how music fits into your process at a very early stage as well as the question. Sure. So I'll answer to your question and then I'll, I'll address that. Um, well, so Betty Davis' Eyes is just a song that I really, really love. And for me, it's endlessly romantic. Uh, and I just felt like, you know, Lawrence anyways was really about literally picking all of the songs that I really like and being like, can we buy them? And, and, um, and 
I didn't ne- really never care about didn't make sense with the characters what the characters would be listening to or because they would totally be listening to that song um, and I guess that ever since Lawrence anyways and there's there's been Tom where all the use of music is completely diegetic nothing plays on Tom on Tom right except the score all of the songs are playing at the radio or in a CD or in a bar or so and it was the same for mommy but then I thought it's not only always going to be the radio I've, I've got to find a way in mommy to to have these great songs from the 2000s and and, and late 90s where we're all going to be happy to hear them and and I guess what I'm what I was looking for is that these songs are so famous and they're such hits that whenever we hear them I feel memories very deeply rooted inside us inside ourselves surface and it elicits a collective emotion that serves the film and I don't mean that in an egotistical way but in a selfish way but I think that that's the purpose of music and film is you know making us feel uh, more than what there is on screen and so and Blue um, the, the Eiffel 65 song um, did seem like the sort of song Steve would love to dance on because he's such an electron and he loves to move and dance and and um, all of the songs in Mommy were finally part of a mixtape that um, the father who was dead uh, in the film uh, gave them before dying and it's a mixtape of the songs they were allegedly listening to during a West Coast road trip they did a couple of years back. Happy years of their lives. So that is what they're listening to. And at one point, you see Steve, you know, as you just saw in The Colorblind, uh, the Count of Crows uh, song, you see his finger pressing play, and you can, from there on, you can, you know, understand that he is in charge of the soundtrack, and that whatever song you hear in the film afterwards is probably playing on his ghetto blaster and I love saying the word ghetto blaster um, so that's about it for those two songs I'm glad you I'm glad you you like them um, and then yes um, so you wanted me to talk about how early yeah how early I, the- I think I think you already touched on a little bit of how music fits into your films and why it's important but I think it was important to just have you elaborate on the how early on in the process as early as when nothing exists yet such as hearing a song on the radio and thinking I love that song going home and writing a script um, it happened once it is not a script I've directed yet it's in a drawer somewhere with all the post-its and napkins with ideas and things that are waiting to um, yeah be written uh, but, um, well, for Mommy, I had, I heard that song called Experience from Ludovico Inaudi. Uh, it's an instrumental piece that I really, really love. And when I heard it, I was extremely touched. And I immediately 
thought of a mother visualizing the life that she would never have. I just didn't know that it would be die and mommy. And I thought one day I have to use that for that. And then finally I did know that I, I knew that I would, that I would direct mommy, that mommy was the next movie. And then I wrote that song, uh, sorry, I wrote that scene on that song, knowing that I would be asking for that song. And then I wrote the rest of the film around it. And more specifically, I always forget to mention it for some reason, but the moment I know that I'm ready to make a film is the moment when I have cut in my head and edited shot by shot on a song, the trailer of that film. Before I have that, I'm not ready. I haven't seen the film. I would be bad. I, I'm not there in my life. It's not the next one if I don't see the trailer. And the trailer of, um, of Mommy that you can watch on YouTube is a trailer I had seen in my head before I had even written the script down. And um, I have the trailers for John F. Donovan. I have the trailers for whatever else. Sorry, I'm dying. <coughs> now. <coughs> All right. So music intervenes very early. Have some water. We'll take yes. another question. Um, let's, we'll come back over here, but let, um, let's, let's go to the third row to the woman here, and then we'll come around to this side. Hi. Hi. I'm just wondering if having a growing body of work about mothers has been something that's come up with your own mother? And if so, how you navigate that both personally and creatively? Um, well, my mom loves the films. She's, uh, it's not, you know, not all mothers are about her or inspired from her. The first movie was very much inspired from our relationship. When I mean, you know, very much, I mean almost 500%. Um, and, but then from that moment on, from that film on, um, my mother is very inspirational. She's very inspiring. Um, many characters are made of elements of her and moments I've lived with her. But for completely different individuals. But it's true that many characters consist of, of, of an amalgam, you know, a weird way to amalgamate myself and my mother and my grandmothers. And um, I can't say that I Kill My Mother has brought us closer. Um, I can't really say that. And it's, very, it's a very idiosyncratic relationship. Because, of course, we're not at odds, you know, like in I Killed My Mother. Well, not anymore. We don't live together. Um, but what's very tricky about this relationship is that, is it raining? I'm hearing a sound like it's raining. No, okay, sorry. I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> Blanche Dubois. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Vivian Leigh is here. Um, so it's a tricky relationship because she is, as much as she is present in my creation and in my work, and as much as she helps me understand women and somehow selfishly exploit some flaws or fissures or cracks within which I explore some dark, I guess, gorges of, 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 of the human soul. Well, that is a complicated sentence. Uh, but I guess that through her, I write a lot and understand a lot and write about women. But it is bizarre that, or not that bizarre, that in real life, that inspirational report does not translate into a healthy relationship. And we are not at odds, but I cannot say that we are close. And I know that now will pretty much be, I think, the last time I probably ever talk about this because she will hear about this. She will see this and she will be hurt. She's read some interviews and she's got Google alerts. She calls them goggle alerts. Um, and which I think is lovely, but irritates me. Um, <laughs> it's in the next movie. Uh, and yeah, she will hear about this and she will not understand. And anyway, but I hope that answers your question. Uh, let's go here and then we'll work our way back. Uh, um. I always have particularly gravitated to the women characters in your movie and the actresses who play them. And I enjoy seeing um, them recur in other films and I've kind of noticed that pattern. So wondering if that's happy coincidence or what, whatever it may be. And then also um, if you could speak a little bit about uh, your hands-on working with them as a director because the, the performances are always incredibly moving to me so all right okay thank you so you mean you would love me to comment on whether it is coincidental whether it is a coincidence that they that we work again together that was more of like a superficial like preface to the actual question of how you actually work with the female that you're okay yeah <laughs> all right i'll still address your superficial preface uh as i love shallow preambles um <laughs> no, but I completely understand. So it's not a coincidence. I mean, obviously, I, I have written Mommy for Anne. Mommy, not the character. I've written the film for her to work with her again. And Suzanne, whom I missed from Lawrence Anyways. And I have written Lawrence Anyways to work with Suzanne. I've not written Lawrence Anyways to tell a story of love between transgendered women. And, uh, no, I've, worked it, I've, I've, I've written it to work with her. So that is as much as I've... Um, written John F. Donovan to work with, I'm not going to tell you who. Um, um, no, that came later. Um, that, that was a beautiful surprise, uh, but um, originally, anyway. Um, so, Anne and Suzanne are very dear friends, and I know them in real life, which I think is precious when you work with actors. Uh, unless you are unable, obviously, of you know drawing a line professionally on a set, which I feel that I I am, I am able to do, but 
knowing people in a very private way and in their privacy will, I believe, help you to achieve, not to achieve, sorry, to help them achieve complete transformation and composition. Because it's not only about their previous work, thinking, oh, I want to be different than that film and that film. Yeah, of course you want to be. But now you're also going to be different from who you are in real life. You cannot laugh like you laugh. You cannot walk like you walk. <coughs> Sorry. You cannot, you cannot cry like you cry. You can't do any of these things. It's got to be 100% someone else. And so knowing them in real life is very challenging for both of us because they also know me and, and we want to bring each other in some other place, in some unknown destination. Um, and so working with them on set is, is mostly about having absolute and total faith and trust in each other. Um, I have absolute faith in Anne and in Suzanne and uh, I think it's reciprocal. And how, <clears throat> how it happens with them, as it happens with all of the other actors on my sets, is that I try to direct a scene, uh, not as a director, but as, uh, as an actor. This is how I can understand a scene, is how I would act it out, not direct it. So when the camera is rolling, you will never hear me shut up, except when they're talking. When they're talking, I, I'm listening. But if I feel that as an actor, and they're welcome to do the same thing in improv when they, whenever they want, we create everything together. We change the dialogue together. We choose the clothes together. We, but when the camera is rolling, I often feel that as an actor, I, I would chime in and I would say that. I would add that because suddenly it seems like it's, it's befitting and that it's, I'm looking at the monitor and I'm like, oh, this, but I don't want to say cut and say, oh, Suzanne, could you, could you add that line? I want her to add it now. She's been perfect in the take, and she's had that little moment where she sort of forgot her line, but she turned it into something more interesting, and now I feel like I want her to do this, and she's just about to say her new line, but I don't want her to say it now because I feel like we need a beat here because it's too much dialogue, and it's tiresome, and it's overridden, and it's... so. I'll just tell her to shut up and look through the window or, and she's great when she does that, and I love it when she does that, just open her mouth and sort of discourage herself from saying something and then wait, take a beat, and then say it. So it is a constant dialogue with the actors, and especially these two, because they can respond to that and they can incorporate notes as the scene is ongoing. They can incorporate notes seamlessly. And this makes their acting seem to me like a sort of constellation of stars where every star is an idea. And you know when people tell you, that is a constellation right here, and they take a you know, thick uh, pan and they draw lines between it, and it's like, look, it looks like a you know, turtle. And you're like, ah. and that's really annoying. And when you don't see the stars anymore, you just see a turtle. And you're like, great. All right, I'll look for the turtle in the sky. But now... What they do, you know, what I think this does is that it breaks the little map that they've drawn for themselves, that I've drawn for myself. 
it breaks. It makes every, all of this collapse. It makes us go back to the most basic of instincts. And it makes them rush and fear and doubt because suddenly it's not all about what they had calculated. Oh, here's about my little, you know, blinking and here's about this and that and here's about my, 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 my shtick or whatever. Not anymore because someone is talking to you and you must incorporate that. And, and when we all do that together is, I feel, when we found the most beautiful moments in the film because they were not written and we didn't, I didn't find them alone in my living room. They didn't find them alone. Not to give, you know, not to withdraw whatever credit they could have. They have all the credit. And I found some things and they found some things. But these things, we found them together on the spur. So this is how I work with them. We have um, unfortunately reached, reached our hour mark. Oh, shit. And, Sorry. Uh, Xavier has to uh, take a plane back tonight, I think. You're flying home? No. No, you're not. Okay. That is a lie. That is a lie. You're not flying home. <laughs> Uh, but well, I didn't know how it would go, so I just had to tell you the plane line. No, I mean, it's been changed. It's been a while. Anyway. Either way, I've been given a signal that we need to wrap up. Okay. Um, but I want to just... I'm sorry if I gave long answers or sometimes I don't know what to shut up. Not at all. I think your answers were very thoughtful. So thank you for, well, uh, thank you for spending the time to elaborate on your answers and to spend the time talking with us here. As I've already said multiple times, the film opens next Friday here at Film Society. So I hope you will come back to see it. But for now, join me in thanking Xavier Dolan for spending some time with us. Thank you for your questions and your time. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>